0: Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Well, this is Ken Root. I have had a radio addiction for a long time, and there are others uh, with a similar condition. In my case, it came from a childhood of listening to WKY radio in Oklahoma City, and then at 24 years old, having the chance to work with the legends of that station when I became the lowly assistant farm broadcaster. George Davison, welcome, first of all, and what got you started in radio?
1: Ken, I think it was very much uh, similar to you. Growing up in uh, North Missouri, uh, WHO, Des Moines, was the uh, station of choice because it uh, came in loud and clear. Uh, That's because it was a clear channel station at 1040 with 50,000 watts. Uh, Other stations uh, that uh, might have served northern Missouri just didn't come in very well. There were some good stations in Kansas City, of course. Uh, St. Joseph had KFEQ, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. And it came in fairly well during the day. Same with the Kansas City stations, but they had to go directional at night. And so uh, uh, I I grew up listening to WHO uh, as we would travel around with my mother and father. The radio always seemed to be on and we'd listen to various stations around uh, the area in which we were traveling. So uh, then at, uh, when I was still in high school, I had the opportunity to do a weekly sports program on the radio station in Mexico, Missouri, KXCO. That program was recorded, but it uh, really hooked me on the concept of, of doing radio. Uh, by the time I was 18... In 1968, early 1969, I made the trip to Trenton, Missouri, met with the owner of the station, and uh, before I knew it, I was doing Sunday afternoon news on a 500 watt daytimer at 1600. That led to uh, eventually uh, moving uh, to Des Moines and working for WHO twice, started at WHO in 1970. Left WHO went to KRNT in Des Moines, and then uh, pursued a career in law, uh, having leaving the broadcasting business. Eventually, returning to WHO uh, shortly after nine eleven, and uh, being at WHO uh, contemporaneously with you at uh, at the station. I continue to uh, be very fascinated by the fact that an AM station gives you uh, wide coverage depending upon how many other stations are on the same frequency. Um, but the uh, the idea of the clear channel station with 50,000 watts and being able to cover a wide area is still, to me, very, very fascinating.
0: Well, in the early 20th century, when uh, radio started, and I'd like to focus on that for a moment, uh, it was a remarkable new technology. I'm working with some people from the um, Iowa Antique Radio Collectors and Historical Society are going to have an auction on the 6th of May at Anamosa. Many of those people collect the little radios that go all the the way back to the beginning, most of them having headphones rather than speakers. But if we look at radio historically, and that's where I really wanted to talk to you because I know your passion for the history of it in Iowa. First of all, we mark the 100th anniversary of AM radio with a station out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, didn't we, back uh, when they went on, I guess, in 1920?
1: KDKA, Pittsburgh, a Westinghouse station, and uh, it uh, broadcast the returns on the Harding-Cox presidential election. How many folks were listening, it's hard to tell, but uh, there it was, radio in the ether, giving information as it was immediately available. -hmm. And uh, from that, it uh, it grew. Uh, There were still a lot of problems, particularly from the standpoint of okay, where do we put these stations? How do these stations uh, keep themselves on the air? And what kind of regulations should there be? I think it's very interesting to point out that following the uh, election of Warren Harding as president in 1920, taking office in 1921, Herbert Hoover, an Iowa,n There's your Iowa connection, which you always have to have in every story. I was told by Jack Shelley many, many years ago. uh, Hoover became Secretary of Commerce, and he saw that radio had tremendous potential, but it also needed to have regulation. So he started on a program of trying to assign frequencies, assign powers, and bring chaos out of what was occurring out in the ether at that time.
0: Well, at the point then after that, with many people fascinated by the potential for radio, um, Iowa stations popped up, and we've had a centennial of an Iowa station or two already, haven't we? Actually, uh, there are three
1: that have been on the air for 100 years or more. Uh, WOI in Ames, Mm -hmm. the Iowa State University station at the time. WSUI in Iowa City, the University of Iowa station, and then WOC in Davenport, uh, put on the air by a fellow by the name of Robert Carlowa in Rock Island, Illinois. Carlowa discovered that it was very, very difficult to uh, support this broadcasting business, and the station was purchased by B.J. Palmer and the Palmer School of Chiropractic. It was moved to the Brady Street Hill, where the uh, Palmers had their uh, chiropractic school, and WOC came on the air in 1922. In fact, in in 1922, that's kind of a seminal year, if you will, here in Iowa, at least 11 stations were assigned to the frequency of 833 kilohertz. That would be about 830 on
0: the current. All of them. All of them. On one frequency. Oh, my goodness.
1: And uh, there were stations in Centerville, Fort Dodge. There were two in Sioux City, two in Waterloo, one in Shenandoah, uh, WSUI, which their original call sign was WHAA, and WOC and WOI, as well as the Des Moines Register and Tribune station, WGF. That's mm-hmm. in 1922.
0: For the general public, George, I think it's interesting to. Know why some of these stations had these call letters. First of all, without getting into too much depth, you have stations that start with W and stations that start with K. Why is that?
1: The original line of of demarcation was North Platte, Nebraska. And if you were east of North Platte, you had a W as part of your call sign. So that would be most of the East Coast stations, the Illinois stations, The Iowa stations, some of the stations in Missouri, in other words, uh, once you got west of North though, you got a K call sign. Well, that changed at some point, and the Mississippi River became the line of demarcation. Uh And so generally, if you are a station which is east of the Mississippi, you're going to have a W call sign.
0: That is not the case even today. For example, WKY which was in Oklahoma City, uh, it was east of North Platte, Nebraska, but it remained with the W out um, still to this day. There's several scattered stations west of the Mississippi with a W.
1: Absolutely. Kansas City, WHB. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and WHO, for that matter, WMT. Um, <laughs> we could keep going through them until we get tired, but that shows you how how long and how old this was. Uh, this, uh, this history goes back. But past that, the naming of stations was fascinating to me, and I'll use Chicago as an example. As I have heard it, and this is subject to your correction, at the beginning, you could not have a radio station and have commercials, but you could have an underwriter. And so in the case of WLS, Sears, put it on, and WLS supposedly stands for World's Largest Store. And in the case of the Tribune newspaper, they put a station on, WGN, which stands for the World's Greatest Newspaper. Is that accurate?
1: You are accurate, Ken. And, of course, with the 833 kilohertz frequency for all of these stations in the beginning, the stations were very limited on what they could uh, broadcast. Uh, primarily weather and some news information. Some of the weather information would be broadcast by code, the Morris Code, as things started to develop and this business of radio broadcasting matured, stations could start to broadcast entertainment. The uh, Register and Tribune station was, was very, very interesting. Uh, Des Moines Register and Tribune station, WGF, which was put on the air in 1922. The station used homebrew equipment, which was developed by an amateur broadcaster. And that was the case with many, many of the stations. Of course, you had the Westinghouse stations, uh, KDKA. There, there we've got a, a K station uh, east, of, uh, east of the Mississippi. Westinghouse developed its own line of broadcasting equipment. And from everything I can tell, from everything I have read, It was very, very good. Please keep in mind that back in 1922, this radio business was still in the highly experimental stages. Uh, By December of 1922, WGF, the Register and Tribune Station in Des Moines, was broadcasting uh, music, um, including a program for the new year that would include jazz, marches, and what's called first-class music. Now, I'm not quite sure what first-class music was or is, but these were RCA, or they were Victor records. I'm sorry. I'm used to thinking of uh, uh, RCA Victor, the uh, uh, recording company uh, associated with the Radio Corporation of America, with the uh, dog in front of the uh, horn on the radio, listening Uh, to his voice. And... uh, uh, these uh, records were to be released in January, and WGF in Des Moines was giving a preview for the public on radio. Well, of course, as time went on, recorded music became a very important staple of the broadcasting business. Uh, leading up to, uh, after World War II, the development of the top 40 stations with Todd Stores and his, uh, his string of uh, seven stations, including WHB in Kansas City. Yeah. And uh, KOMA, uh, the big sure. 50,000 watt right. station with a directional pattern that went uh, out to the southwest.
0: So yeah. let let me stop you for a second, George, and that we're halfway through the length I normally go on a podcast, and we're still 101 years ago. And uh, I want to bring it forward in kind of a friendly manner. And uh, the details that you have are very very interesting. But I think the real strength of radio through the years was the colorful nature of some of these stations and what they did to uh, entice their audiences. And a few of them have books written about them. I'd like to tell you a couple of stories and see if you can uh, touche with uh, your own type of stories. But one of the stations that was very early was KMA in Shenandoah, Iowa. And KMA was owned by the Earl May Seed Company, and Earl May was a real pioneer in many, many areas. I'm sure, George, you know of him.
1: Absolutely. In fact, uh, I almost went to work at KMA because it uh, is such a great station, such a uh, historic station, and committed to public service to the area that that 5-kilowatt station serves of uh, southwest Iowa, eastern Nebraska, parts of Kansas, and parts of Missouri. Earl May was a showman and a character, but he understood that to get people to buy his seeds, he had to promote them. He uh, determined that the best way to promote the Earl May Seed Company and its products was to do it by radio and uh, getting into the homes, and then doing public service. Uh, One of the great features of KMA over the years were the radio homemakers, ladies who were farm wives, who had stories to tell. He would uh, arrange with his engineering staff to put microphones in their homes. Mm -hmm. And uh, then at a certain time of day, each of the individual radio homemakers on KMA would come on the air uh, there was there was one lady, uh, Mrs. Burkby, who she referred to her husband as the farmer, and she talk about what the farmer had done that day, and what was going on, and then give some recipes or some household hints. And these broadcasts were greatly appreciated by the by the folks in the uh, uh, in the areas uh, that were served by KMA.
0: And I think they called that uh, show Kitchen Clatter. Well, there was uh, a show kitchen clatter, yes. Yeah, so it was very colorful. Here's an Earl May story you may not know. It comes from a book about them, and I interviewed his son near the end of his life uh, when they had a big anniversary. And during that time, he asked me if I had, had read the book, and I had read part of it. And he told me an interesting story that Earl May early on in his life, was uh, aspiring to be a, uh, a great speaker. And he entered a speech contest somewhere around the teens, the, uh, the 1915 era. And when he did so, he won enough to go to a regional championship of which there were five speakers. Each of these youth, and this is pre-4H and FFA, Got up to give their speech. And when they announced the winners, Earl May finished fifth. And so at the end, he politely walked over to a judge and he said, Sir, could I ask you uh, what you thought of my speech? And the man turned around and said, That was the worst speech I have ever heard. And that man, was William Jennings Bryant. (laughs) As a result of that, instead of knocking Earl May down, it made him determine he was going to prove William Jennings Bryant wrong. And William Jennings Bryant was this aura of speakers, one of the great of all times, George. He had a, a famous speech, didn't he, back in the 1890s?
1: Of course, he's remembered for his cross of gold speech uh, to the effect that you shall not bury this nation on a cross of gold. And the argument being that the uh, nation uh, and the gold standard created problems, especially for people in the rural areas.
0: But Earl May went on from that. He put that radio station on the air in the early 1920s. And in 1928 or 29, he was named the Outstanding Radio Broadcaster in America. And many people said that it was all because Bryant told him he was the worst speaker he had ever heard.
1: Well, you know, the the other interesting thing about Shenandoah is Frank Field. Yes. Frank Field originally was on KMA. Field had the Field Seed Company. There in Shenandoah, and recognized the power of radio to help promote his seed company. Frank Field was able to obtain a license for KFNF. KMA and KFNF in Shenandoah were great promoters. They promoted the heck out of things. They'd have these great days when people from all around would drive into Shenandoah to see the entertainment that was being offered by KMA and by KFNF. And the local merchants must have loved it because even during the days of the depression, having people come into town, they would spend some money and these stations promoted each other. They promoted their seed companies and they promoted Shenandoah and they were doing great public service.
0: Well, one of the stories of KMA was that they would have an annual pancake breakfast that was free, and they would have one of the flour companies bring a car, a rail car, in that had their name on the side of it. And that was where the pancake supposedly came from. And they would have another company that made syrup bring that car in with their name on the side of it, and they would pull them both up on a siding next to or close to wherever they were having this event so the people could see that they were getting, you know, theoretically a train car load of pancake batter and syrup. And you're right. They were incredible promoters. The KMA people had a crystal studio and they had an area where that they could either raise or lower this glass to where that they could keep it private and soundproof, or they could make it to where that the audience, which was in a big auditorium, could uh, hear and take part in it. Uh, so I don't know anybody that did a better job of that than they did. And having those two stations going at each other, you know, they were very competitive as well as being promoters. They, they both would like to have been the greatest seed company. And supposedly with Earl May, they generated so much caller activity and so much letter writer activity that they were able to get a million names on their customer list of people they sent out catalogs to to buy seed. Let's pause for a minute to talk with Taylor Parker, who is the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, is there a link between those people who have a
2: type of diabetes and a potential for hearing loss? And the answer is yes. If you are a type 1 or a type 2 diabetic, you're twice as likely to have a hearing loss. If you're a pre-diabetic, you're 30% higher than those with you know, normal levels of glucose. Think about you know, our body being all connected. You know Everything interacts, everything works together, and proper blood flow is, is required, and, and it helps keep a cochlea, The cochlea is a tiny little snail-looking apparatus that is part of the hearing process. Inside of the cochlea, there's 15,000 tiny little hairs that need to be in good condition to get a proper signal to the brain from the ears for hearing loss. When you have high glucose levels, we lose the elasticity for our vessels and proper blood flow. They shrink. And, and we can't get that good, proper uh, blood flow up to the cochlea, as, as well as, you know, all the other extremities in our body, when, you know, our feet, things like that. And hearing loss is the second leading health epidemic in the United States, only behind heart disease. Everyone talks about all these other conditions. Heart disease is very similar in, in the standpoint of proper blood flow, all those things. So diabetes has that huge piece, whether you're type 1, type 2, or even pre-diabetic, has a huge role in good hearing or having a you know, potential untreated hearing loss. Thank you, Taylor.
0: You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. Call them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Now let's return to my interview with George Davison, who is a radio historian and loves to talk about the era of development of radio in Iowa. He's one of two people I know who uh, has a law degree, but an addiction to radio. I'm trying to remember the other one.
1: Well, in a very similar situation with WNAX up in uh, Yankton, Mm -hmm. South Dakota. Right. Uh, We think of WNAX as the... uh, uh, Lawrence Welk Station. Welk was on WNAX for many, many years, and uh, the uh, seed company there in Yankton put WNAX on to help promote and to help do the same thing that Earl May and Frank Field were doing in Shenandoah.
0: Did you ever read a book called WLT that was written by Garrison Keeler? It is very likely to me to have been written about uh, WNAX. They had a band that had uh, that traveled out across the state. Uh, they had people who were writers for melodramas during the day. Uh, there were all kinds of people in that book that seemed to me to parallel what those stations did in their early days.
1: Well of course WNAX was was very favored. It had a low frequency at 570 kilohertz and 5,000 watts, and good soil, and a tall tower. And its signal covered a broad range of territory in uh, western Iowa, uh, of course, South Dakota, and eastern Nebraska. Uh, I can still recall that WNAX had a billboard over by Denison, Iowa, with a uh, caricature of its tall tower, inviting listeners to tune to WNAX because of its favorable signal, even in Denison, Iowa.
0: I think that today that station has the greatest reach in coverage of any farm uh, news station in America. And of course agricultural news is often based by the territory you cover and the value of the land uh, for people selling things to the farmers. And I want to finish up here, George, with uh, something about farm broadcasting and go back to your regulations of the early era. This is what I've heard. I'd like to see if it bears out with you. When the FCC or whatever it was to begin with started regulating stations, they were asking, are you serving your broadcast community, which was everybody under their signal, and to do so. They would document it, especially in the city of license and the cities around it, and they would ask for diaries and other things that people would send back in on their view of the station. But there were these big stations, these clear channel stations you're talking about that reached a long way. And the FCC said, what are you doing for the farm community, those people who are outside the borders of your towns? And after um, a bit of uh, not knowing what to say, very early on, one of those stations said, oh, we're going to have farm news and markets. And the FCC smiled. And that appeared to be why there were a very large number of those stations that had a farm broadcaster beginning shortly after they went on the air.
1: Well, Ken, I, I think that's absolutely right. Because uh, under, the, under the laws, as they developed, a station had to serve in the public interest, necessity, and convenience. And of course, uh, in the uh, areas of, of Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Missouri, farm, the farm was an important and crucial part of the economy. Still is, but it's more secret today. Um, WGN with its, uh, very, very excellent farm broadcasting, uh, heritage, WHO in Des Moines with Herb Planbeck as the original farm broadcaster on WHO out in the community, out doing public service, uh, at WHO when I was there in the 1970s, we had a dedicated USDA market wire yep. that uh, was used to, uh, uh, report the commodities and the, uh, and the current prices for the farm community. Of course, a lot of that has changed now because of the uh, advent of the Internet, the advent of uh, various commodity services that farmers can subscribe to, uh, significant changes. But the farm broadcaster was a friendly voice who served and who broadcast to those farm communities. And indeed, we go back to KMA, and it had its own farm department as well.
0: Farm broadcasters were revered. Unfortunately, it was before I got into the business, but I got to know those people. I knew Herb Planbeck for quite some period of time. I met him in 1974, and I went to his funeral in the year 2000. And in that time period, you get a lot of funny stories, but to show you how it happened, after that period, I was on WMT and I was out on their Tractorcade one year. And we were at a little town and at the historical society. And I was setting up and trying to find guests for the big show. Well, there was a very elderly man there. And I said, sir, would you be on with me? He said, yes. I said, do you know anything about the, the heritage here of the stations? And on the air, he said, when I was a boy. I had a champion bull at the Iowa state fair and I was to be interviewed by Herb Planbeck. but Herb wasn't available. So he sent Ronald Reagan. True story.
1: And that shows how back in the day you did, if you were working for a station, you did what you needed to do to keep the broadcasts <laughs> on the air. Another Reagan story, if we have time. Sure. Uh, Reagan was working for WOC at the time. And uh, he was to give the introduction for a a program of music performed live from one of the local funeral homes. And so the music comes on. And as Reagan told the story, it was beautiful music. And he was supposed to give an announcement in favor of the uh, funeral home, a commercial. And he said, I just couldn't do it because the music was so beautiful and funerals are so depressing. Well, the program went on without a hitch. And, uh, but the next day, Reagan was called into the office and said, son, you didn't do the commercial. We've got to have the commercial so that the funeral home gets its due credit. He learned the importance of getting the commercial on.
0: Yeah, I, you know, have some friends in uh, radio across the country that are harking back to those times. They do obituaries every day on the radio. And people listen as much for that obituary list as anything else because it's always important, you know, to keep track of things in the community. And in one of the stations, one of my friends was there. And this lady came in who did those, and she came on and she said, I'm sorry, no one died yesterday. And then she went on to do something else because she had to do it, but she didn't have any names for that day. Five minutes to fill. That's right. you got five minutes to fill. you got to make something out of it. George, let's do this again. You can tell this history forever. And um, maybe you should start your own podcast of all this because it is absolutely fascinating. I only got you into 1922, so there is probably a little bit more. But there is one last thing to finish with, and that is the worry that AM radio may be in its last days because the car manufacturers are giving the indication they are not going to put AM in any of their electric vehicles.
1: The interference issue is a great one, but my engineer friends tell me it's not that difficult to overcome. Of course, we are seeing uh, a number of AM stations go off the air because they aren't making it. They aren't getting the advertising revenue because supposedly people aren't listening. My point is this. People will listen if you are providing them a service which they find important. Just as your story about the lady who read the obituaries every day on the local station. That's important to people. When I was working at KTTN in Trenton, Missouri, we had the hospital reports from the area hospitals. That was important to people. They wanted to know, okay, who's in the hospital? How how sick are they? Can we go see them? Service to the public is what's important. Radio should not be just a jukebox. It should be a service providing information that is wanted by the public.
0: One time when I left Oklahoma and I had moved to Kansas, I was going to the town of Concordia and they were having a farm home, boat and motor, travel trailer, Shackley product show that we made a lot of across the state as we started a network there. As I was driving in, it was noon and uh, I heard the sounder for the radio station and it was a highly produced piece and it started out with from the wires of the Associated Press and then drums come in. Boom, 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 boom from the worldwide news gathering of ABC. This is KNCK news with Wendell Wilson. And then this little voice comes on and this man says, hello, this is Wendell Wilson with the hospital report and the police blotter from overnight in Concordia, Kansas. Les Nesman was real. Les Nesman was real. (laughs)
1: to the point of protecting his territory.
0: (laughs) When I saw WKRP the first time, I turned to my wife and I said, I think this is a documentary. I knew every one of those people. Yes. Every one of them was in radio. Whoever wrote that show was brilliant because all they had to do was just hang around a radio station long enough and you would see the beautiful receptionist the crazed disc jockey, the deranged salesperson, the general manager who knew less than nothing. (laughs) And then, of course, you would drop in a few other people as well, including Les Nesman, the newsman. That show was as enjoyable to me to watch as any comedy sitcom I have ever seen. I agree. Thank you, George. The characters were so great. Thank you, Ken. (laughs) we'll talk more. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.